you can turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament. I do hope uh, you have a Bible with you that you might follow along and examine it as we uh, study it together. And we're in chapter 17 of our ongoing series in the morning through uh, John's wonderful Gospel. And we pick up the Lord's continuing prayer in verse 6 of chapter 17 this morning. And we'll carry on through verse 19. So let me uh, read those verses for us. And and then I'll pray that the Lord blesses our study of this passage. And we'll begin together. So do listen as the Lord speaks to you once again uh, through his perfect word. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. We do rejoice this morning, Father, that you are near to us, that your word is true. And let us store it up in our heart that we may not sin against you. We know that your testimony is our heritage forever, and may it be the joy of our heart this day that you would fulfill the joy of Jesus in our souls. We do pray in his precious and powerful name. Amen. You may be seated. It was about a hundred years ago that a minister in Scotland was laid up for many days sick and he came across an old book that had gone long out of print. It was a book that did him so much spiritual good as he was laid up on his sickbed that immediately when he was well enough, he not only left the place of recuperation, but he began to see if he could see if that work could be reprinted. It was a book that had been published by a minister in Scotland, a few generations older than this man who had been sick. It was a collection of sermons that were given on John chapters 13 through 17. And the man was succeeded in reprinting this book, and it was quite profitable. 
and very edifying for many people in that land across the Atlantic. And it's a book that's gone under the title of The Inner Sanctuary. And as we've looked through these chapters in John 13 through 17, this very text that has occupied us in the last few months, we've seen various titles given to these chapters. Remember, many people have called John 13 through 16 as uh, the Upper Room Discourse. We even saw two weeks ago as we began chapter 17, it's referred to as the High Priestly Prayer. But I think that, I think that old minister was on to something by calling it the Inner Sanctuary because it's here in ways that is peculiar to all of the other gospel passages, uh, that the heart of Christ, the soul of our Savior, is, is opened unto us in something of its fullness, because even as we talked about in a few weeks ago in that first study of John 17, that nothing reveals a person's heart, nothing unveils the concerns of their soul, nothing shows who they really are like prayer. And so what he had been doing, we know by this point, for a few hours is speaking with his beloved disciples there around the table fellowship of the Passover meal in the upper room. He had told them about some of the most important things that belong to the gospel, some of the most important things that were soon going to belong to their life. He said that he was the only way to God, that his pending crucifixion, His pending exaltation was going to be a benediction for them because he would pour out the Holy Spirit upon them. That's why it was good that he was going to leave because the Comforter would then come to them. And that Comforter was utterly necessary for so many reasons because they were going to face, these 11 men there around the table with Jesus, they were going to face continual hardship and even martyrdom in the world But he encouraged them, you remember, as chapter 16 ended, take heart, he said, because I have overcome the world. And so what's important for us to realize when we turn the page from John 16 to John 17, in in many ways we're turning the page from what could be called the greatest sermon ever preached to look now at the greatest prayer ever preached. Prayed, And it's a glorious prayer that we began two weeks ago to study, and it's a glorious prayer that continues this morning, and we have that glorious privilege, don't we, of, of listening in to what the Savior prays. And I know a number of you have been at our church long enough that many of you have been to a prayer night that we have quarterly here in this room on Sunday evenings and throughout the last six plus years that we've been doing these regular prayer meetings. One of my, my favorite ones that we do every single year is we pray for the, all of the children in our church. We print out a master list of all of the covenant children in our church and we spend about 45 minutes in small groups. We pray for each single child by name and then About 45 minutes after the hour, we gather all of the children that are present in that prayer meeting, which is usually a few dozen. I sit them up here in the front of the room, and then all of the adults in the room, we surround all of those children, and then we have the adults for 10 plus minutes just pray for the Lord to bless these children, to to keep them, to uh, preserve them. And I do that pastorally because I, I think there's unusual help that comes from hearing a person pray for you. And I genuinely hope that uh, those, those prayers not only help the little souls along the way, but they might be prayers that even haunt their hearts along the way as God's truth has been prayed over them. You, you probably know, 
intuitively and experientially, it's one thing to know that a person is praying for you, which is a blessing. It's another thing, and a different kind of blessing, to hear that person praying for you. And the disciples thus got this immense blessing, didn't they, there in the upper room? Because they hear tonight, or I'm sorry, this morning in our time, uh, they hear, of course, Jesus praying specifically for them. Because we mentioned in our first study of John chapter 17, the first five verses, finds Jesus praying for himself. Then verse 6 through 19, what we have before us this morning, that's Jesus praying for the 11 men originally there around the table. And we know that's true because if you glance down to verse 20 of our chapter, you'll see that Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, so we could substitute these 11 only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So it's a prayer full of petitions that have immediate, original application to the men soon to be commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, But I trust that we all know this morning that these words have a direct correlation to us, many implications for us, because anyone who claims the name of Christ, anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ, is likewise a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so, as we think about this message that I've titled, A Glorious Prayer Continued, all I want to do is show you four simple points from the petitions that Jesus makes. You might think of them, students, as four musts that belong to every true disciple. And the first of which is, true disciples must receive his revelation. So look again, verse 6 Or Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. It's important to recognize here, and maybe you noticed it even, children, as I was reading the passage, how in this first portion of Jesus' prayer for his disciples, he's emphasizing how they are a sovereign gift that he's received from the Father. And you can underscore that by the number of times in just the first four verses of our passage, he speaks about something, namely them, being given to him. Because you notice the text continues, verse 7, now they know that everything you have given me is from you. He says in verse 8, I have given them the words that you gave me. Verse 9, he says in the middle to the end, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And he says in verse 10, you'll notice, all mine are yours and yours are mine, that I might be glorified in them. These 11 men seated here right in front of me, Father, these are yours. You gave them to me, so I am praying for them. You know, children, it's a doctrinal truth that Jesus is underscoring here that we can think about as sovereign election. It's simply the truth that Jesus has some that belong to him. And there are others that don't belong to him in the same saving way. That there are some the Father has placed into his hands as his chosen, treasured possession. And there are others in the world that he has not given to him as his chosen, treasured Possession. Even one old commentator would say, this doctrine before us is one which is specially hated by the world. Nothing gives such offense and stirs up bitter feeling among the wicked as the idea of God making any distinction between people. 
of loving some more than others. But what you need to know is that from Genesis to Revelation, the entirety of the Bible preaches this gospel of of sovereign grace, that to deny it is to not just rob God of glory that he is due. It's not just to misunderstand the Bible itself. It's to empty the gospel of its very comfort-giving power that those whom God has given to Jesus, of course, are people that he is praying for. A number of you have been with us in our winter Sunday school that's been going through J. Gresham Machen's classic work, Christianity and Liberalism. And along the way, you've heard much about Machen's life, and some of you might remember how uh, when he died in December of uh, 1936, he was in Bismarck, North Dakota, and he sent a final cable from his hospital bed. And it was a cable that was very short and succinct about his dying in the faith. He just simply said, So thankful for the active obedience of Jesus Christ. Stop. No hope without it. Stop. And I've often thought, you know, if you were asked to give a short, simple cable at the end of your life, what would you be so thankful for? What would maybe ground you in hope for eternal life? What would give you that comfort as you face your dying day? I I personally tend to think if I could just riff a little bit on Machen's simple statement, I'd probably say something like, so thankful for the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ. No hope without it. Jesus is praying because that grace, that sovereign love has been revealed, manifested to these men. And even in the midst of his prayer, he goes on to show us how elect disciples like them show that they actually belong to Jesus. Because You look at the end of verse 6, he says, You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. He's saying that they show forth their reception of that revelation in their obedience. Of course, it's important, students, you recognize that the very gospel hangs on an important distinction. That it's not as though our obedience merits salvation as much as what Jesus is praying here is that our obedience manifests our salvation. And that obedience of faith, you'll notice he emphasizes in verse 8 even further when he says, I've given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So what are these men that he is praying for beyond men that have received the revelation of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ? These are men that have trusted and obeyed. They know that there's no other way. I wonder if you're a person that lives in such a way that faith, that obedience is revealed for all to see. That's true here of the disciples. They, they must receive his revelation. Now, secondly, in some ways, the burden of this prayer-filled petition is on the second point, which is they must also trust his preservation As you look again, he says in verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I suppose it's true for many of us in the Christian life. We often come across needs and requests from fellow church members, brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the week. And uh, we hear about a need for prayer, and we often respond with something like, I'll pray for you, and then... Sometimes, isn't it true that as the ordinary week goes, hours pass, days pass, 
and you realize you haven't prayed for that person, that you haven't prevailed on the promise that you delivered. So much of the good news in this passage of a high priestly prayer is that Jesus, his promise to pray for his people is one that he is perpetually faithful to. That he's always praying for his people. And the urgency, even in this moment, to pray for his disciples, you'll find is really found in verse 11. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So why is he praying with such urgency? Why is he lovingly let letting the disciples overhear what his heart is burdened for them about, but the fact that he's soon getting ready to leave. Uh, they're going to face difficulty in this world, and he asked that the Father would, would keep them, would protect them, would preserve them. He had been guarding them. Jesus himself had been guarding them during his earthly life and ministry, but now he knows he's leaving, and they're going to continue to need protection, for you'll see what he says, verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So you see, I trust, don't you, that even this, this prayer is, is preaching unto us this, this gospel of God's sovereign grace, that it's his love and election that has given a certain people to Jesus Christ at the same time, too. It's his power in protection that preserves them, that, that, that keeps them in the faith. And kids, this is a doctrine we often refer to as the perseverance of the saints, or you might like to think about it at least in large part due to this passage as the preservation of the saints, because it's God's sovereign activity in our lives, and it's not uncommon when we ever, whenever we talk about these truths and these kind of doctrines, people will wonder about well, Judas Iscariot, you know, I mean, didn't he fall away? Someone that the Lord had chosen, someone that the Lord had placed in Jesus' hands. What about Judas? Well, you see again, he, he says in verse 12, yes, Judas has been lost. Why? That the scripture might be fulfilled. Far from actually undercutting God's sovereign decree, Judas's betrayal of Jesus only underscores how God has ordained everything. This is exactly the way it was supposed to go, Jesus says. One was supposed to be near me who would betray me unto death, a death that would save sinners. And so he's underscoring for these disciples that there's a great need for their protection, their preservation in the world. And if you were to just scan your eyes through the passage before us, what you would find is 13 different times in our text Jesus mentions this phrase of the world. Hey, he's giving us not only this rich doctrinal exposition of, of sovereign grace, he's also giving us very practical and useful thoughts about life as a disciple in the world. So I want to give you three summary ways that Jesus wants us, wants them, his true disciples, to think about life in the world. First is that the world is a foreign field. Notice what he says, verse 14, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He repeats the same thing. Look again, verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Why is it that they are going to face such tribulation, such persecution, such opposition, and even death? 
Uh, Why is it that cosmic principalities, that government authorities are going to rage against the disciples like a wolf snarling after sheep? Well, they don't belong in this world. They are not of this world. What that would mean, students, is they, of course, belong to a different kingdom. Their allegiance is to a different king. Uh, Their life is governed by different rituals and regulations and rights and rhythms and rules. I wonder if someone was to stare at your life in an ordinary week, would it be altogether apparent to a classmate or co-worker this person is not of of this world? Uh, They clearly belong to someone else, to another kingdom. He says this world is a foreign field. It's also a battlefield. You look at what he says in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You could expect, couldn't you, if, if Jesus here in his sovereign saving power uh, could pray for his people knowing all of the hardship that they were going to face in this world, that he could just pray, Father, take them off the battlefield and put them on the home field. That's the kind of preservation and protection that they need. He says, no, that they have to stay right here. So keep them from the evil one, uh, that satanic lion that roars and prowls in such a way that he wants to destroy them. They know, these disciples must know, that the world is not just a foreign field and a battlefield, it's, it's also a mission field. You see that verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Uh, this verse here in John 17, verse 18, it's, it's long been a favorite verse of, of many missionaries that the Lord has sent out to the nations throughout the ages. Uh, one such missionary was an English cricketer, Cricket player, students and children, if you know what the game of cricket looks like, in the early 20th centuries, this man named C.T. Studd, and he went down to Africa to, to preach the gospel. And He was so effective in preaching the gospel that he seemed to many in his time and place altogether indispensable in missionary work. And so one day someone asked him, well, what happens to all of this, this missionary work? And when C.T. Studd dies, well, in his autobiography of sorts, he said, well, we will all shout hallelujah. The world will have lost its biggest fool, and with one less fool to handicap him, God will do greater works even still. But it was in that context of being asked the question that he said perhaps what is the most famous quote attributed to him, or he says that many people, they desire to live within a few feet of a chapel bell or or church bell. And he said, I long to, to run a rescue shop within yards of hell. Uh, he was a man that, that knew this world is a battlefield. This world is a mission field. And these 11 men are soon going to be commissioned, aren't they? To take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to, to the ends of the earth. And in the same way, isn't it true that Jesus Christ continues to commission his church To be that beacon of light, the hope, the glory that's found only in him, preaching his gospel, that saints may be gathered in, sanctified, that his sheep would be found and made holy and pure, that we would preach that good news, that there is only one name under heaven by by which any person can be saved. And so you see, as he continues into our text, he says in verse 17, sanctify them 
in the truth. Your word is truth. So true disciples must receive his revelation. They must trust in his preservation. Thirdly, you see simply here from verse 17. They must grow in his sanctification. He simply says for these disciples, sanctify them in the truth. You know, two things that you want to see related to verse 17 is the desire that Jesus has for his disciples' holiness. You know, kids, I hope you know what sanctification means. There are a variety of different ways we could define it, but here's the simplest way you need to think about it. Sanctification is just being made like Jesus in his holiness, in his godliness, in his emotional life, his, his spiritual life, his mental life. It's being like Jesus. And what are these apostles, what are these disciples, these 11 men around the table, what do they need most for the mission to which Jesus is soon going to call them? They must be sanctified. They must be holy. They must be godly. Jesus has an immense desire you need to see this morning for your sanctification. And isn't it good news that this Savior He longs for your sanctification more than even you long for your sanctification. So much so that he pours out his spirit into your hearts to make you like him. Now, of course, it's possible that you could have grown up in a church environment, perhaps a tradition or denomination that emphasized holiness, sanctification, but maybe in ways that weren't entirely helpful. Maybe it was daunting, this pursuit of godliness. Maybe it was even constraining and self-righteous, these calls to be like Jesus. Well, of course, we we know that Jesus desires something better for us, that, that we would be like him according to his word, because he shows us not just his great desire for sanctification, but even the direction for sanctification at the end of verse 17. He simply says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I was thinking about this earlier this week. Some of you may have seen this in a Friday email that I send out to all of our church. And uh, For whatever reason, this week was thinking about sanctify them in the truth and the way in which our Presbyterian tradition, I think rightly, has so often emphasized that holiness comes through the ministry of the Word in our midst. And I just began to think about how in our ordinary Lord's Day rhythm at Redeemer in the last six and a half years or so, We've had lots of Bible in our midst. And I thought, yeah, there's been lots of Bible, but even I was surprised to see how much Bible has been in our midst. You know, between the morning and evening sermon series, we've preached through, I think, about 20 books of the Bible. Another 13 or 14 books we've read through in the evening service. I was telling this to one of the kids and one of my boys who's good with math and knows, I guess, the Bible well enough in the totality of the books that said, Dad, that's half the Bible in six years. It's half the Bible in six years. But is it making us more like Jesus is the question. You should delight in the fact that this is a church where there isn't a famine of the word. That doesn't mean though, does it? That it might not be a place where there's a famine of hearing and responding to the word. Obeying the truth and being sanctified in the truth. You know, a devotion to the Lord's word is not a place for self-righteous pats on the back as though we are actually doing anything right because we can be doing much wrong and it still look like we're doing a lot of things right. 
This very apostle who wrote this gospel in his book of Revelation, you might know, in chapter 1, he said, Blessed are those who hear the word and keep it. Sanctified are those who hear the word and obey it. What do disciples need? They need sanctification. They must receive his revelation. They must trust in his preservation. Finally, in our final verse, let's begin to close as we hear that other must, the fourth one, which is love his consecration. See, he says in verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. It's actually the same word there, consecrate, is the exact same one he just used in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. You could translate verse 19 as, and for their sake, I sanctify myself. And we recognize, of course, Jesus had no evil, had no sin that he needed to be sanctified out of or or from, so he must be meaning something different than that. And yes, he means something different than that. It's this idea of being set apart. Uh, Just as Old Testament sacrificial animals were consecrated, sanctified, set apart to be the atoning sacrifice for sin, what's Jesus getting ready to do? Consecrate himself, sanctify himself, set himself apart to be the atoning sacrifice for sinners like you. Just as the high priest in the Old Testament would consecrate himself, sanctify himself, set himself apart that his offerings would be pleasing to the Lord, so is Jesus going to do the same, that his offering would be pleasing to the Lord. And you can read through some wonderful sermons related to this very verse in church history and you'll watch preachers just begin to burst with excitement of the simple truth of verse 19, for their sake I consecrate myself. No one takes his life willingly. He's already told the disciples this. He's going to lay it down purposefully, lovingly, sacrificially, willingly. He's going to be consecrated so that you might be consecrated. You see how that purpose comes at the end? Verse 19, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. That's why other places in the New Testament can glory in the reality that Jesus Christ gave up his life for the church that he might sanctify her, present her without blemish, spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. You must love his consecration because it's your very salvation. His consecration brings forth that needed sanctification. So we get to hear, don't we, in this passage, yet again, Jesus praying for his disciples. It's an invitation into that holy of holies, the heart of Christ Jesus, that, that inner sanctuary. And I hope you're listening. I hope you're seeing why he's bringing you there. Look at verse 13. He says, I'm now coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. I am praying these things as those listen to me, why? That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It's going to get hard for these disciples. So hard that all but one of them are going to die a martyr's death. But remember, I have prayed for them. That their joy may be full in this life. So that certainly has to be why, doesn't it? When you begin to watch these disciples 
go about their commission to preach Christ and the acts of the apostles when the suffering, the trials, the tribulations come, what are they always abounding in afterwards? Joy. Joy in the struggle. Joy in the suffering. Joy because a Savior is praying for them. Joy because they've received his revelation. Joy because they know his preservation and sanctification. Joy because his consecration was for them. Joy that's offered to you this very morning. If you would come to this inner sanctuary, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have given to us the opportunity to hear our Savior praying for his people. Let us be like those disciples of old that know the fullness of joy that's found only in Jesus. That no matter the trials and troubles that come, uh, the suffering and pain that may even be present now, we would know his mercy, that we would cling to his comfort that our intercessor would always be pleading for us that we might be sanctified until the very end. And we do trust these things and ask of them in his precious name. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we do.